Blog Talk Radio. to research at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett, and co-host, Patricia Glover-Howard. Hi, Patricia. Good evening, Bernice. Hope you're doing well. Oh, just having a good time, Patricia. Well, everyone, Patricia is going to be monitoring the chat room and summarizing your comments. Well, a special welcome to the callers and chatters to research at the National Archives and beyond. This show will provide individuals interested in genealogy and history an opportunity to listen, learn, and take action. If you have logged in as a guest, and oh boy, we have guests tonight to participate in the chat, just sign in through your Facebook account or Blog Talk Radio. Now, tonight's show will focus on a book entitled The Price for Their Pound of Flesh, The Value of the Enslaved from Wound to Grave and the Building of a Nation. And my guest is Dr. Dinah Ramey Berry. Now, how do you ascribe a value to a human life? In the antebellum South, How were values for enslaved people determined? What value did these individuals and their families attribute to themselves? And how did their understood value in the marketplace impact that? While the economic value of slaves in the domestic slave trade has been previously explored, it has tended to focus on healthy, young male slaves. In her new book, The Price of Their Pound of Flesh, The Value of the Enslaved from the Wound to the Grave in the Building of a Nation, Dr. Dinah Ramey Berry, a scholar and an award-winning historian, opens up a new era, area of insight into how valuations of enslaved people vary by age, health, and gender. She also introduces the idea of soul values, an appreciation of one's own humanity, which transcends monetization. Now, this is the first book to explore an enslaved person's ascribed value throughout their entire lifespan, including before birth and after death. So let me give a warm welcome to Dr. Dinah 
Ramey Berry to research at the National Archives and beyond. Welcome, Dr. Berry. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. It is definitely a pleasure to have you. So let's start at kind of your beginning. What motivated you to write your book? Well, it's kind of a long story because when I first started the research, I thought I was writing a book that put a full context into the monetary values placed upon enslaved people's bodies. And I spent a good portion of six or seven years just collecting data. Um, But I was trained as a social historian and someone who is um, interested in labor, family, and community as well. And I had a background in economics from an undergraduate degree. Um, But while I was doing the research, I was more interested in what enslaved people felt, thought, and knew about the fact that they were being commodified. And I wanted to know why had scholars not asked the question or added their voices into this narrative. You know, we have a large literature of work on slavery and capitalism and on slave prices in particular, but very few, if any scholars, even asked or looked or explored at women and children and the elderly. And so as I was working on the book, I made a change. Um, And I started focusing on what they knew because I felt like it was very interesting as I was doing the research to see them enslaved people have commentary and have thoughts and have opinions about their values, about um, their monetary values, and about auctions and, and sales and so forth. And so I ended up writing a book about their feelings and their thoughts. And I tried to mix that with all the research that I had done on the actual values, the monetary values. And I tried to blend the two to tell a story, a particular story. Why? And, you know, as as I read your book and, and shared with you my own personal experience of finding my enslaved two-times great-grandfather on an inventory with a dollar price tag associated with him, And so many of the people that are listening who are genealogists will perhaps be able to say the same thing. They have seen that value associated with a person. But when you think, well, how did they feel? That's a whole other dynamic. And I'm looking forward to hearing you say more about that. But before we get into talking about the values for enslaved people, Tell us, uh, at least give us an overview of your process for gathering information for this book. So this was really about looking for needles in haystacks and also looking for every place in any type of record that had monetary information about enslaved people. And what I mean by that is that the records vary. There are, you know, basic bills of sale, um, there are, which are the actual market values. There's also the appraisal values, which were done on inventories, often kept within the estate records. Um, and also in wills, you find valuations. Um, you find medical records that have uh, insurance policies where they appraise the value of an enslaved person. You find court records where someone is suing another person because the person, enslaved person died in their care or was injured in their care. Um, I found them as gifts. I found them in raffles. 
I found them in a number of different settings. And I was just trying to catalog enslaved people in all those settings. Yes. So how were values for the enslaved people determined? Well, what I found is it's very arbitrary. It depended upon who was doing the valuation. Um, there's not really a consistency. And sometimes it depended on the owner um, and who, or the, the medical examiner that was doing it. It was really just, the, it, it varied. Um, there, was no, there was no set scale. Um, but they, sometimes they had warranties, though, where they would warranty various body parts to say they were sound. And other times they would choose um, just averages and appraisers and have witnesses doing depositions to confirm the value. Gee, that's really, I mean, just to think, warranties. I mean, really, this is a human being. Now, I, I just want to jump for a second to something that you mentioned in your book. You mentioned in your book that there was a rating system uh, and that that rating system for enslaved resembled the U.S. Department of Agriculture meat grades. Please explain what you mean by this. Well, one of the things I found when I was doing the research trying to understand rates, because not every enslaved slaver used rates, so you don't find that was, it wasn't common on every single plantation record that I used, but sometimes when I saw that, I saw the description and the language and the word choice was very similar. So when you look at meat grades and meat gradation, they talk about it's based on the, the, the density of the muscle tissue and that, that same language that was used to talk about meat at around the same time was the same language that we find in advertisements and broadsides for enslaved people. And so when I saw that, I thought there was a connection here that needed to be explored a little bit more. And I, felt, I saw those patterns within the ways in which we saw broadsides where they'd say choice select, a select group, grade A or A1 prime, same language that they were using for meat grades. And it's all about how much fat is in the tissue of the muscle. Um, and I thought that there was something there that needed to be further explored. Oh, my goodness. How much fat was in the muscle? Gee, so when we talk about values, and you mentioned the enslaved, how were values for the enslaved people determined? Well, they looked at the age, they looked at the skill, they looked at their health, they looked at their physical capacity. Um, some of it depended on what they wanted to use them for. So for some mm -hmm. women, they were being valued for their uh, fecundity or the ability to give birth to healthy children. Did their children survive? Did their children last to age five or six? Were their children strong workers? So those were some of the same things that they were thinking about when they were when they were judging women. For children, they wanted to to make sure that they were physically fit. They could run up and down and do paces, and they were strong. Um, that was one of the main characteristics. But then you also have some people that were valued for using them as sex slaves. So for their looks literally their physical looks, was another way that they valued them. But, okay, so they, so they valued them in that way, but you also talk about how the slaves valued themselves. So tell us, uh, what values did the enslaved attribute to themselves? One of the things I find is that enslaved people did not care about their actual monetary value so much. A lot of people ask me when I've given talks, 
whether or not they wanted to command a high value, uh, whether they had bragging rights. And what I find is that enslaved people were mostly concerned about either being sold to a certain person or not sold to a certain person. So they would sit there in the auction or stand there in the auction, disrupt the sale in ways that Walter Johnson has identified in his book, Soul by Soul, where they would say, well, I'm worth more, I'm worth less. But oftentimes that was motivated by a desire for them to be purchased by someone that their partner may have been purchased by or where their child or their mother years back had been sold to. So they wanted to be sold by them. So sometimes they'll brag, like, look at your arms. Look at her arms. My wife has got strong arms. Please buy her too, Master. You know, look at her. She can do fine. Mm-hmm. She can do work and she can give birth to fine children. You know, so sometimes they're bragging on the strength and capabilities, but it's not because they um, enjoyed enslavement or wanted to be enslaved. It was because they wanted to be sold to a particular person or to avoid being sold or wanted to maintain their family ties. So from the enslaved perspective, all of that was based on, you know, being connected with their family members. Yes, and it is just something that you never think of that, yes, they were bragging, but they were doing it for a reason. They were saying things for a reason. Yes. Now, since your title... Since your title tells us that the value is from the womb to the grave, please provide us with examples starting at the womb. And I know this this is not an easy topic to discuss, but just talk to us. Tell us about, you know, child childbearing women, the babies and, and even breeders for that matter. So yeah, so what I find is that what I found, and I was this was part of the research that was surprising to me because I knew that they were valued before they were born, because I had done work on enslaved women. My dissertation in graduate school was on enslaved women, um, and I but I didn't know they were valued beyond death. So let me just back up and kind of go through the life cycle. Um, so okay. women were appraised and they were considered, as I mentioned, they were they were projected values, thinking about this particular woman and her future increase, which is a term they would use to say a mother and then the children that she may give birth to or that she'll give birth to in the future. Um, And so they'll look at someone, if she had given birth to healthy children, her value will be based on that. You also find, though, that um, sometimes unborn children were already accounted for, literally in the record, already attributed to ownership by somebody, so they might say, well, her firstborn will be given to my daughter, her secondborn will be given to my son, her thirdborn will be given to my wife. So even before they were born, there were calculations and there were, there were transactions in, in legal records identifying unborn enslaved people. And that's what I mean by, I used to say, from preconception to postmortem. Um, okay. So that's the first part. Um, then after, you know, mothers give birth, they also would change their valuation based on how the children that they gave birth to fared, whether they survived. We do know that infant mortality was extremely high in the 19th century, which is where the majority of my research came from. Um, so that if their children were sickly, they would say she's a good breeder, but, you know, the, the two offspring she has are sickly. Or they say she's frail. So you'll see very, very descriptive language either in plantation records, in journals, in letters, in diaries, and so forth. And as I looked at the valuation where enslaved people were valued throughout the course of their lives, at every stage of their lives, they're valued. When I get to the part where I say post-mortem or from the womb to the grave, 
the great piece is that um, enslaved people after they passed away were sometimes their bodies were then sold or transported as part of an illegal um, cadaver trade, called what, which, I call, which I call the domestic cadaver trade. And their bodies were then sold to medical schools for anatomical dissection and research. So they were once again treated as a commodity and sometimes put in these whiskey casks, um, barrels with lime or brine or whiskey, and transported sometimes along the same route as the domestic slave trade, along with similar in steamboats, on ships, on trains after the 1840s, um, by carriage, and they were traded to schools so that then they could be used for anatomical dissection. This is such a difficult <laughs> a listening <laughs> tool right now, yeah. just to hear you say, you know, and we've seen this. I mean, we've seen it in documents, her future increase. Uh, mm-hmm. But to say that the value continues even through death, and, and I've yes. actually had a show about the cadavers. So it mm-hmm. is something for, for all of us to, to be aware of. Now, there's a question coming out of the chat. What was the infant mortality during those times? I don't have the exact statistic because it actually depends on region, locale, but I'll give you some examples. I don't, I don't have the exact figure, um, and it depends, like, whether you're in South Carolina or Georgia, are you along the coast, are you in inland, are you in an urban community? But it was so high that some women, at least in coastal regions like South Carolina and Georgia, would have maybe 12 or 13 pregnancies, but maybe only two or three live births. Uh-huh. So they were being they were getting pregnant every other year, and the children that didn't necessarily survive, or they were giving birth to stillborn. Now I found um, a number of records, and I'm sure some of you, the, your listeners have probably come across this um, cemetery records, where they have the cemetery plots. They'll sometimes have um, charts in there that'll talk about the cause of death, and oftentimes they'll see stillborn, stillborn, stillborn. And I don't know that if anyone's ever calculated the number of, of black women uh, enslaved or free during the 19th century who were born, um, who gave birth to stillborn children. That would be a, an excellent study. It would be a sad study, but it would be an excellent study um, to do because it's something that was quite common. And I'm only saying that without giving statistics, but just saying that because I've come across it in my own research. Yes, yes. Well, one of the things that you did mention also in your book is that the enslaved woman spent her entire life fearing the separation, cell beatings, and death of her children. Say more about this. Well, you know, I have to complicate that a little bit, Um, and I'm not sure if it came across in the book, but because there were some women that were very, there were some women that were indifferent to motherhood because of the emotional strain, maybe their first child or their second child, having that child be taken away from them. Some, some women later became indifferent to motherhood. And what I mean by that is that there was a woman that was interviewed at the auction. They asked her, you know, they were trying to figure out how many children she could give birth to and how many children she had successfully given birth to. And they asked her a question, well, how many of you had? And she said, it doesn't matter. You know, they, 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 they uh, all get taken uh-huh. away. They're all taken from me. I don't count 
you know. So there's this, some enslaved people, man and woman, wanted to have emotional distance, as Brenda Stevenson, historian Brenda Stevenson writes, this emotional distance from their children and their offspring because they did not want to have that attachment. So there are, so there, I just wanted to leave some space for us to, to, to acknowledge and recognize that some parents um, didn't want to be parents because they didn't want to deal with the agony of separation. Okay. I just wanted to put Mm -hmm. that on the table for discussion. But what we do find though is hundreds and hundreds of records of, you know, um, mothers wailing at the auction scene um, mother's crying, you know, I think it was Charles Ball that remembered the sound of his wailing mother, even a mile off, he could still hear her crying, you know, and I can't tell you how many records I read of that, of it just, that scene had such a large impact on the children's lives as they grew up and as they were older and they were interviewed later on, they would say, I will never forget that day. I will never forget that day. Mm-hmm. And one of the other um, things I wanted to try to do with the book, and I'm probably just at the beginning of it, I don't know if I was able to uncover as much, is that I have an auction scene in there where there's a father and a son, and they're holding hands, and there's tears coming down their face. I put that in there because most um, most scholarship up until recently, and I mean in the last two years, really just focused on the maternal, the mother-child relationship. And that's Mm-hmm. That's not anything that we should we should point fingers at scholars for, because plantation records often didn't note who the father was. They often didn't recognize a paternal connection. They would say, "Mothers, um, babies are the following mothers." You know, you probably have seen this, or they'd say, um, these, "These are the the blankets are given to the mothers of these children." Every once in a while, you'll see, you know, Polly and Sam and their children, and that's rare to even yeah. see the the mm-hmm. father's paternity recognized. Um, but mm-hmm. I do see that there are men that lived at this time that wanted to be fathers, and there are men that, that wanted the emotional distance that some enslaved mothers wanted. But I wanted to also show the reader that, you know, there's, here's a father-son that's together in the auction block, and they're having their moment the same way we've read over and over again, countless, of narrative, countless narratives of mothers um, losing, you know, losing their emotions over the fact that they're being torn apart from their children. Well, you mentioned soul value, mm-hmm. and for for those of you who understand what I'm speaking of, I'm not talking about soul, S-O-L-D. I'm talking about soul, S-O-U-L. Tell us about soul value. Soul value is a term that I came up with to describe actions, words, uh, responses from those enslaved people who had some type of drive or fight or will um, to survive. And I'm not saying that um, that everybody could tap into this. You know, I, I think it's an internal value. It's it's an it's a value about them themselves that they they felt like that could not that I argue could not be commodified. It is them believing that there's something beyond this institution that's completely, you know, treated them as a product. Um, There's something there. There's there's hope in another space, in another place. And sometimes soul value is connected to a spiritual being, and sometimes it's not. But it's this will, and it's expressed in a number of ways. And some of the ways that I write about it is from from somebody fighting back. Um, It's expressed through various forms of resistance. And I've also found that enslaved people 
talk about it, but they don't they didn't call it soul value. But they'll say, you know, I, I, God never meant for me to be an enslave, be a slave. You know, I mm-hmm. I knew I didn't. Ha- I, nobody could master me. You know, He might have my body, but He doesn't have. He might have my body, but He doesn't have my soul or my spirit. And you know, I'm not a hung, I'm, I'm not part of a hung down head down head hung down race. You know, we were proud people, and I feel like that was really missing from some of the literature and there was so much such a focus on the melancholy which was real the depression this is you know using contemporary terms um the idea of of of, of blacks being depressed and dejected and treated like children and 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 some people experience that some scholars sociologists um Orlando Patterson calls it social death you know some people talk about enslaved people as being childlike or sort of moving along as robots, kind of not really, not really physically present emotionally. And there were a number of enslaved people that, that experienced slavery that way. But I kept thinking to myself as I was doing this research and I kept seeing these voices and these actions of enslaved people doing something different that rejected the institution, they carved a space for themselves to survive, that there had mm-hmm. to be something that allowed 4 million people to make it in 1865 to freedom. There had to be something deep within them at the core of their souls that allowed them to fight and keep on and keep living and keep pushing and to have hope. And I, I, I call that soul value. And there's a question in here. Could, could the soul value also parallel and connect to genetic memories? This is a question that's coming out of the, the chat room. Oh wow, that's a great question. Um, I wish I could ask for clarification on that too, but um, I think it could, and it also could connect to um, just a strength of of that family line. You know, some people may have stronger emotional capacities than others, and I think we see that even today. And, and so, soul value could be connected to that. But I also think it can be reinforced by your loved ones if you're around them and other people in the community. It can also be mm-hmm. reinforced by people that are enslaving you, and they may not know that they're reinforcing the, the, the soul value. And what I mean by that is the treatment and the dehumanization that they're experiencing, that they continue to experience, might allow them to think, you know what, I'm not going to stand for this anymore. I'm not going to put up with this. I'm going to push forward through this. So not everybody is genetically strong. Not everybody can do um, lift a certain amount of weights. You know, there's not, you know, when I think about this today, and I think, and that's why I, I try to leave space for those enslaved people that didn't necessarily tap into a soul value. Um, I'm, not, mm-hmm. I'm not saying everybody did, but I just wanted to add to this conversation um, a, a, a level of survival mechanism that was internal that had to do with a rejection of commodification. Right. And I mean, and you did say, I mean, the strong survived. There was something there something in yes. the soul that they survived. Uh, mm-hmm. well, one of the, uh, in the, in the chat room, uh, Patricia is saying that you're talking about her great-great-grandmother, America Gordon Risby. She had soul mm. value. And oh, so I love that. She, she's relating to what you have to say. Well, I want to go oh, back really for a minute. That. Yes, to, to the children. And you tell a story about the infant girl, Rachel. Could you please share that story with everyone? So Rachel is being taken to an auction by another enslaved man, and his owner 
um, or asked him to take her to the auction to be sold at noon, at, at the noon hour. And um, he takes her to a courthouse steps, and she's wrapped up. And when he gets there, he's sitting on the steps, and as time goes on before the sale takes place, she's becoming a little more antsy, and she's crying, and she's inconsolable. And one of the, some of the questions that I ask out of that moment when I'm thinking about Rachel and trying to understand and even conceive of, of describing her experience is, you know, what, how, does, how does one uh, make sense even at that young age, you know, you know, probably just a few days old, you know, or months old, how does one make sense of what's happening? You know, obviously they're not cognitively available to do that, right? But mm-hmm. there's something that's happening from birth on um, that they, they may feel emotion from the people that are holding them. They may feel certain emotion from people that are, that are examining them. Um, but Rachel's unconsolable. And the reason why I, I started off my, I think it was chapter one with Rachel, was that I was trying to show readers that, you know, it didn't matter how young enslaved people were. They were sold and separated from their parents at very, very young age. And they were taken to the auction block without their parents um, at, a, at very young ages and taken and put on the market. So how were enslaved children valued if they were taken? Well, I mean, this is an infant. <laughs> yes. What can yes, an infant yes. do? Mm-hmm. Well, an infant can't do much but cry, right? I mean, there's not much. And, and, and this is why I tried to, when I was writing and, and researching, I was thinking about the life cycle, literally, and going through, like, what would it be to be valued when you're not even conceived of? We can't, I can't answer, I can't speak to that. We don't have records uh-huh. from those that are not born. Um, but then I think about, okay, here's the first child. I mean, when I did my research, I've shared this story before, I had an Excel chart where I was putting in all of this data, and I would have the name, the age, the sex, the price, and I had a column for age, and I remember it was like age and years. And then I realized, like, oh, my gosh, there's some, I'm coming across infants. I mean, I'm coming across people that are eight months old, seven months old uh, in the market. And so much of the literature in the 70s and 80s and the 90s said that families were sold together and family groupings and mothers were not separated from their babies or even in Louisiana there was legislation that said you could not sell a child away from their mother until age 10 but I was coming across record after record after record of babies that were months old so I created a column for months old and then I saw a baby that was a few days old and I thought oh my goodness you know so I put that you know the the weeks sorry I had to do weeks old and then I had to do days old and when I got to a three-day-old baby, I had to take a break from the research for like about a week because yeah. I was so flabbergasted that I remember thinking, how can I tell readers what a three-day-old baby felt? What did she think? What did she feel? I cannot even put words to it because she's not even at a cognitive age that she can express herself except for maybe crying because she's hungry and her mother's not there or her father's not there, or somebody familiar's not there, I cannot find a way as a writer and as a historian to describe that except for just describe the scene. And I, I, feel, like I've, I feel like I've done an injustice to the infants, but I did the best that I could with the records that I had. Mm-hmm. And we have a comment, our babies, I'm weeping. 
Well, we have several questions, so let's see if we can get through these questions before we take a quick break. Uh, The first is, did the value of women decrease with each stillborn birth or each child who died after birth? Great question. I have seen patterns of that. Um, That's a difficult question to get at because I sometimes – the records that I'm using, and I'm sure many of your listeners know this, are scattered. So it's, I don't, I'm not always able to trace one woman's birth history from, you know, her first through her seven children that she gave birth to. And if, even if I do have records of her giving birth, or even if some of them are stillborn, I may not have her values, or I may not have the appraisal records on that same woman. Woman. So I can say this about that is that, yes, women that were and they would write the word barren or she was barren or gave birth to stillborn. And so I've seen in inventories, scattered inventories, where women were, their values were decreased. Um, one, of the, the, one of the things that drove my research was that I was trying, I thought that women were priced higher than men during their childbearing years. And I did find that for about eight plantations in coastal Georgia for my first book. And I thought, okay, this is going to be a national pattern, and I can't wait to write this book about here's a space where enslaved women were valued more. And when I added all the other states that I, that I covered in here, I found out that those plantations were sort of outliers and that across the board, for the most part, men are priced higher than women, even during their women's childbearing years. Okay, and so with that, we're going to take a quick break and then come right back. Just a quick break, everybody. Welcome back to Research at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett, and you can join me every Thursday at 9 p.m. Eastern Time, where I will have an expert to share resources, stories, and answer your burning genealogy and history questions. Remember, all of my guests share a deep passion and knowledge of genealogy and history. All of my shows are available as a podcast immediately after the broadcast, and they can be downloaded from Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, TuneIn.com, and Stitcher.com. Well, you have been listening to Dr. Dinah Ramey Berry discuss her research and book, The Price for Their Pound of Flesh, The Value of the Enslaved, 
From the Womb to the Grave and Building of a Nation. Well, let's continue our discussion. And there's a question about gender, and let's talk about that. Did the gender of the child have anything to do with their appraised value? That's a great question, and I'm happy to say that I can tell you the answer based on the records that I used. Gender did not matter until about age six-ish or seven. Um, Boys and girls were priced the same during infancy and early childhood. Um, it Often I found the price shift between six, age 6 and age 10 when boys for the first time were given pants. Otherwise, they were all, both boys and girls were wearing smock sort of dresses. So when boys were given pants and girls continued to wear dresses, and when they started doing light labor that Wilma King talks about in Stolen Childhood, toting wood to the fields, you know, bringing water, getting pots for coffee, um, serving in the house with another um, elderly or older enslaved person. Um, that's when you start to see a separation of, of value, and you also see what I would argue a hypersensitivity and focus on, on girls that are going through puberty because they want to know that moment that she's able to get pregnant. So there's this fascination that I think I write about in Chapter 3, all the yes. work around their menstrual cycles. And I, I was floored by that research, and, and a lot of it is coming out of the Caribbean and the scholarship in the Caribbean and from um, plantations in, in, um, in, in the Caribbean islands as well. And so what were you seeing in those records? I'm seeing discussions among planters about at what age did your women start to have their first, did they have their first period, their menses? Well, what, what is the age of first monarchies? The article, there's an article about that as well by a scholar, Kipple and Kipple. Um, but they're, they're trying to figure out when they had their menstrual cycles. And so they'll write in and say, well, can you report? Because the, the young woman on my estate, some of the average age is 17 or 18. You know, what, what are you finding on yours? Um, there was a Tennessee planter who had purchased and had a number of, I think he had like 16, I'm not quite sure if I have the number right, 16 or 17 childbearing mothers. And for a large portion of their childbearing years, they were not giving birth. And he just, he didn't understand. He's like, why are these women not giving birth? And he finds out later um, by putting pressure on these women that one of them finally confesses that they found ways to end their pregnancies. Mm-hmm. You also, uh, you know, share a, a, a dialogue, and I, I want you to tell us about this dialogue. It's a dialogue between a Boston religious leader and a slave trader. I'm trying to think which one, which uh, this is... Um... And I think I'm thinking of Chapter 5. I'm trying to yes. think. Well, there's a lot of Boston folks in here. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> um, so Boston religious leader came to witness uh, an auction and ended up not being able to stay to see what happened because it was just too heart-wrenching. It was a scene that he just didn't understand and didn't want to stick around to see what happens at the end. Um, there's a number of visitors that came to the South that we have records of, um, and they were writing about 
slavery and the slave trade. And some of them were astonished at what they found and what they saw. And some of them had a very difficult time with um, the, the level of commodification that they saw happening with human beings. Now, one of the things you you're mentioning because you did talk about well, we're we're talking life stages, so we've talked about the child, we've talked about before the pregnancy, during the pregnancy, we've talked about the birth. So let's talk about what happens uh, beyond adolescent, midlife, and older adult valuations. What did you uncover? Yeah. So this was my this was my parents' favorite chapter. They were so happy I included people that were quote unquote elderly, uh, midlife and elderly. Um, so in midlife, this is when you see a um, fluctuation, and this is also the age range that I have um, that I've identified really just based on the way I saw the price the prices change. Um, but these these individuals were between 22 or 23 and 39 years of age, and this is the age range where, for women, their values decrease because they're not really able to give their the pregnancy the rate of pregnancies or successful pregnancies starts to decline. Although I have to say there are women in their 30s that were giving birth. Um, that so I did find enslaved mothers in their 30s, 33. I think 34 might have been the oldest that I found, age 34. Um, but for the most part, around age 26 or tw- 26, you start to see their values decrease because the children maybe don't survive, or maybe they're not giving birth as often, or maybe they're giving birth to stillborns. Um, with men, their values usually hold through the early 30s, and then you start to see a decline. So for me, this time period is where this midlife to older adulthood is a period where the soul value is heightened because as they grew up to understand themselves as a commodity, their parents taught them that as when they were old enough to receive that or understand it. By the time they're in their midlife area or midlife age range, they have opinions about things. They have responses and reactions. They have a a certain level of will. Some of them have a strong faith um, and others just have a determination. And I think that you'll see more examples for me in terms of my research to be able to express the soul value because they'll sometimes say it like I was described as a first rate um, bargain, right? This this one Thomas Mm -hmm. Likers says, I'll tell you what first rate is. First rate is when he ran away became free, made it to Canada, and he said he rode, he rode against the wind and the tide, and they were able to produce their own crops and live on their own and eat the food that they produced and live with their families. He's like, that is first rate. And for me, Thomas is expressing his soul value. He's very strong-willed, very clear-minded about what all of this is, all the commodification that's externally placed on their bodies, and knowing that internally – you cannot enslave my soul. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's right. They were very strong. All right. So while we have them expressing that soul value, there's still this value. And so the older adult, the older adult at this particular time, what are they seeing and why would they trade an older adult? A whole lot of so, older adult, for that matter. Yeah. 
So one of the reasons, okay, let me answer the second question. One reason to hold on to older adults is that they're pillars in the, the enslaved community. They are, um, even, if they, even if they're not able to physically work, uh, whether they were in an agricultural setting, um, they still are a mainstay to that community if, if we're looking at a larger plantation. And even in smaller settings, um, the elderly were, were very important. Now, from a financial perspective, they were considered a loss or a wash or a liability from the perspective of mm-hmm. an enslaver. So sometimes they would, quote, unquote, as enslaved people said about the Civil War, we were turned loose or we were turned out. Sometimes mm-hmm. elderly enslaved people were turned out. Um, Moses Grandy talks about this when he says, you know, he was, he was very upset to see how his mother was treated in her old age. And it would hurt him to see her sort of just put off in the corner of, corner of, this, uh, this, of the uh, plantation community in a cabin and not really cared for her health, was failing her, and she didn't have the kind of care. Now, there are other examples that I've seen and have where they brought in medical doctors and did what they could to treat them because they had some enslavers had a close affinity because this might have been that enslaved person that raised them or that nursed them, literally, physically nursed them. Mm-hmm. So you do find mm-hmm. sometimes they do take care of the elderly. But their values are often zero. So that there's like a bell curve when we look at the price of enslaved people from childhood to, to elderly adulthood. And the values of those elderly folks that were, and I say elderly, I'm meaning over 40 years old, um, that was considered elderly at that time. Um, you find the values of, for those that are older, 40, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, what have you, mirroring the values of children that are under six years old. Oh, okay. Very interesting. Now, there's a question in the chat, um, mm-hmm. and it says, can we talk about the Deep South? I've heard to find someone over 40 in the 1860 or prior is rare. Not true. And I'll say that just because I have a data set of 80,000 um, individual enslaved people and I have to say, there are people over 40, I mean, there's over 60, over 70. I used an insurance record from Southern Mutual Life Insurance Company um, that had uh, people that were valued life insurance policies from age 9 to, I think, age 63, if I have that right. Um, so there were, that means that they were putting life insurance policies on elderly, uh, elderly enslaved people. I also remember during the data collection when I was looking at the slave schedules, which I'm sure many of your listeners are familiar with from the 1850 and 1860 slave schedules, um, when I was just entering them into the data set, I would find, I remember the day I was, I was recording them, and I would say, like, you know, one male black age 22, one female whatever. And I was saying this just kind of methodically. I was reading them off the list. And I, I was reading it, and I said one female um, mulatto, oh, no, one female black 103, 103, and I screamed on my tape recorder because I just hadn't seen in my own record collecting, I had not seen an enslaved person that was 103 years old. And I just thought to myself, I would, what, what kinds of things did this person witness? What did they oh, see? Yes. Oh, mm-hmm. Can you imagine 100 years of enslavement? I couldn't imagine. I can't imagine the stories that they would be able to tell us. Yes. I, yes. And And at what point... In her life, was she enslaved? Exactly. She could tell the story. Exactly. She could tell the story of the transatlantic slave trade. Exactly. Exactly. Mm. Well, 
Well, since you mentioned life insurance policies, why don't you tell us more about those life insurance policies? So and tell us as it relates okay. to the life stages. Okay. So initially, um, it's, it was referred to as slave insurance, but it, when, when scholars and even if your researchers are looking for this, you're going to find marine and fire insurance, and those are the two places where enslaved people were first, they first appear in those company records because when, when um, sellers or planters that were buying enslaved people were transporting them, they would put them on ships, and they would take out short-term policies to cover in case there was a loss of life at sea or if they were on steamboats, which was very risky at the time because they, there were a number of steamboat explosions. So they would sometimes insure and they would, they would gather insurance on enslaved people through marine and fire and life. Those are the first marine, marine insurance policies were first. There's a scholar named Sharon Murphy who's written a book called Investing in Life, she has Chapter 4, I think it is, that's on slave insurance policies. Um, Baltimore Life Insurance Policy, which is where most of Sharon Murphy's records come from, um, were, was one of the major companies. But then um, as, the, as people saw the value um, in doing that, other companies that were just like mutual life insurance companies had discussions about whether or not we should open up and have slave policies. So Southern Mutual has decided, and it shows this in their company records, that we're going to try out and um, we're going to try insuring enslaved people um, for a short period of time. And then they even talk in their minutes. They're saying this year we had to put out X number of dollars for for slave policies. We're not sure if we're going to remain in this business. We're not sure if it's lucrative or not. Um, so. We do now know that there were a number of insurance companies, including some that are around today, um, like Aetna, um, and the Southern Mutual Life Insurance Company is also, this, I think it's, it, it's Southern Mutual, and it's out of Athens, Georgia, and that company still exists today. Um, they had, their company started in 1848, and they started taking uh, slave policies just a few years later to that, and they wrote about it in all of their business records. So what you find is you'll have a name, You'll sometimes have a name of the owner. You'll have a name. It'll say it'll say policyholder. You'll have the, the the value that they were appraised at. And some of these companies hired medical doctors to examine the enslaved people. And then you'll have the premium and the the the, the uh, term. So the the term could be anywhere from three months to five years. So listeners, if you have not any of those insurance policies, that's a place for you to look. So exactly. as you have mentioned this as a resource, you also mentioned your website as well as Donaway's online archives. So what can uh, the listeners find on this site? And, and just also share with us some other resources. So um, my, I have to say this. I had a little glitch. My my data will all be available. People have been asking for it. It's going to be available. I'm waiting for it to from ICPSR, which is out of the University of Michigan. It's an inner consortium of political and I can't think of the other name right now. But they that my data set, just the data that I collected outside of the Fogel and Angerman data, will be in there. And I'm going to have once we get all that cleaned up and 
formatted the right way, which has taken a little bit longer. I'll also have my insurance records available, which is about 4,000 cases. And it's been an Excel file. We're trying to put it and get it stored, and I'm working through two different computing um, data data companies to allow me to make this accessible so people can download it and they can learn about um, there may be names of planters in there. There may be names of agents um, that are related to your your listeners or connected to your listeners um, for their research. So I want to make this available, and I'm hoping to get it up within the next – I'm hoping to have it up before the paperback comes out in January. That's my okay. goal. Okay. So that, that's your goal. So with yes. Donaway's online archives, what what is that? So – uh, on her, she's got a number of records on hers, and you also have, um, just to give you a couple others, she doesn't have insurance records, but there's just data about enslaved people. Um, you also have um, Gwendolyn Midlow Hall. I don't know if you're familiar with her archives. Oh, yeah. She has the Louisiana. Oh, I'm sure some of you, yeah. So she's got the Louisiana records. And then you have, um, there's one other record I wanted to share with you all. Um I just drew a blank. I'm sorry. Okay. Well. <laughs> okay. Well, there's a question. It's back to the insurance policies. Did yes. policies extend beyond the states to the Caribbean? I didn't see any policies for the Caribbean, but it doesn't mean they don't exist. Because to be quite honest, when I found this record that had four thousand, it took my it took two years. I mean, two summers my graduate students to transcribe this because we we saw we re, we realized after the first transcription that they were duplicates they would renew the policies but the policy numbers had changed um we spent so much time on this particular record that i did not look for companies in the caribbean so that that is an area that i think would be worth delving into to see um greg o'malley's work that's the other data set i was thinking about greg o'malley's inter-caribbean um, slave trade records will be available online um, shortly and connected to the slavery voyages, the slavery voyage website, which is out of Emory. Um, so those records will be available, and that's intra-Caribbean, intra-Caribbean islands, and also to the U.S. Um, I'm not sure if he used insurance records for his. I think he just used ship records. Just ship records. Okay. Yeah. Now there is a comment coming out of the chat, and it's it's relating to the insurance policy. And this mm-hmm. is the statement. This is so upsetting, the insurance policies. Treating our ancestors like property. I'm glad that we have this information. Our people were so strong to endure this truly wicked system. Mm-hmm. And so we people are definitely listening to what you have to say. And and they're just happy that, that you have written this book. You know, going mm-hmm. back to being sold, they'd like you to just say a little bit more about going back to being sold after death. Are there records? Yes. Okay, so this was my surprise that added three years of research to this book, Why the book that took me 10 years to write. Um, I, I had seen, you know, Harriet Washington writes about this in Medical Apartheid, um, Todd Savitt in Medicine and Slavery, excellent record book for you for your listeners, um, mentions that they were slave cadavers, um, and Michael Sapple wrote about it in a traffic, a traffic in dead bodies. 
but just briefly, and I had a meeting with Michael Sapple, who used to work at the National Library of Medicine. Um, there's another scholar you guys should be looking for, his, his work um, out of Liverpool, um, Stephen Kinney. He does a lot of work on slave hospitals and on the medical use of enslaved people. His work will be coming out, I think, in the next year at the University Press of Florida, and those will be some new records that he's uncovering there. But what I found when I, when I talked to uh, Michael Sapple, um, at the National Library of Medicine, I said, I want to know more about these black bodies that are being sold, these cadavers that were formerly enslaved. He said, well, not everybody that was sold was, was black and not everybody was formerly enslaved. I said, I know, but I'm interested in the enslaved people that were sold. And what I found is that the bodies, the adults were, were sold for around $12 in the Virginia market. Um, those that were 14, I mean, age 4 to 10 were $8. Mothers and infants were $15 if they were combined. So that means sometimes there were women that died during pregnancy and so did the baby. So the woman with the baby in her belly was valued relatively high because that's an anomaly. Um, and then infants from birth to eight years were about $4. So the values weren't as high as you find a living enslaved person but they were part of this trade that I, I really want your listeners to know that I feel like I just touched the top of the surface, but I tried to outline it to help other scholars and researchers and genealogists to look for their families, to know to look for medical records, medical schools. They were Black men worked as janitors in these schools, and some of those janitors were the grave robbers that helped facilitate this domestic cadaver trade. And this domestic cadaver trade is an area of research that I think we have a lot more work to do. I did not even cover the New York, the New York market. And I think I would probably argue just from what I've seen is that New York was probably a hub just like Louisiana, New Orleans, Louisiana was a hub for the, the, the slave trade. I would argue that New York might have been the hub for this domestic cadaver trade. Looking at, look through the records of the New York Medical Society um, and any of these surgical societies, um, look for the records of anatomists. Uh, that's who I studied. I studied the anatomy professors. I looked at their logs, their journals, their account books, the school account books, and I found enslaved bodies and black, or formerly enslaved and black bodies all over these records. 25% of these records, Negro subjects for dissection, Negro cadaver coming in over and over and over again. So that's a, that's a totally different resource for people to, to just look into. And as you said, you, you spent a lot of time just studying that. So I I just want to thank you for for writing this book and for giving people a frame of reference when they encounter documents of which they see a value associated with that document. Uh and yes. to also think of the soul value, you know, yes. so that we can at least you have a context and say, you know, they're not just willingly being sold. They're not just willingly yes. standing up on that auction block. I mean, there is something else going on within the mind, uh, that that's helping them survive this atrocity that's occurring within their lives. So do you have any parting words before we end the show tonight? I have something that I think your listeners probably are already aware of, and it's just that my call to action is just to, to, to never forget these people as human beings. I know that sounds simplistic, 
but just to recognize their 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 ups, their downs, their loves, their their hopes, their dreams, their woes, their despairs, and just you know let us never forget them as human beings, and and just try to honor them in any way that you can. Thank you, and I'm so glad you said that. We can't ever forget that we're talking about human beings. Now, I said this was the end, but I do have one more question coming out of the chat Mm -hmm. room. And this is a question about body snatchers. Uh, Mm -hmm. Black folks missing and then missing their organs. Uh, Now, they're talking about body snatchers today, but back in the day, did you have body snatchers, people that died and the bodies disappeared? Oh, that's what I write about in Chapter 6, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And the mm-hmm. organ, there are people, there, and I, I say that this, this, there's an illegal market. I don't like using the term black market, but there's an underground market of organs and, and body parts that was around in the 16th, 17th, 18th, 19th century that still continues today. And I'm, I'm hoping that through this research people will make the connection between that illegal, illicit activity and how that continues today along the same trade routes that the transatlantic slave trade and the domestic slave trade, and I argue the domestic cadaver slave trade. That's right. So I just want to thank you so much for joining us tonight. And as you said, I mean, we need to restore the humanity and just don't forget. We, we need to honor these ancestors. So thank yes. you so much for sharing with us your book and your research, The Price for Their Pound of Flesh, The Value of the Enslaved from the Wound to the Grave in Building of a Nation. And everyone else, I want you to please remember your ancestors left footprints. Therefore, you should follow the clues that are presented to you through oral history, family records, and research at the National Archives and beyond. You can continue this discussion on the research at the National Archives and beyond and the Afrogenius Facebook pages. And also remember to listen to the African Roots podcast with Angela Walton Raji and also watch for the Black Progen Live with host Nika Smith. Thank you so much for joining Research at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. And I just look forward to you joining us next week. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett, and co-host Patricia Glover Howard. Good night, everyone. Good night, Dr. Barry. Good night. Thank you.